0: Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 48. We have two costume designers on the show today, Christine Pasquale, and Elizabeth Whistler. They are members of On Our Team, which is building pay and labor equity in the theater industry by requiring equitable pay and support for theatrical designers. They are working with costume professionals for wage equity and are calling on Playbill to require clear rates of pay for listings on their job site. Before we get to the discussion, let me say thank you for listening. If you are a new patron, welcome. And if you're an old patron, thank you for being a sustaining member. Patrons get a private podcast feed, get the shows early and with the extended interviews. They also get a producer or investor credit on the podcast. If you want to be a producer, sign up at patreon.com artisticfinance Please do so by May 5th. That's when our shows are going by. Bi-weekly, that is. We are currently at 13 patrons. If we can get 50 by May 5th, I will continue to put out new episodes every single week. If not, you'll only be able to fall asleep to my voice every other week. Links to everything we talk about today is in the show notes and on our website, artisticfinance.com. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Elizabeth and Christine, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: We're recording this on March 23rd of 2021, so we're amidst the COVID-19 pandemic, we're amidst the Black Lives Matter slow burn across the world, and the most recent thing was a domestic terrorist attack in Atlanta, Georgia, that killed eight, six of whom were Asian women. So that's our backdrop. I have Elizabeth Whistler here, and I also have Christine Pasquale. Could you each introduce yourselves just briefly and sort of say what your shtick is in life and what you do where you are now?
2: Okay, uh, I'll go first. Uh, my name is Christine Pasquale. I'm a costume designer, which not working right now, obviously. But my shtick in life before I lived the industry is to uh, make it a more even playing field for everyone. I have a lot of people asking me about the industry, and right now I don't feel comfortable uh, recommending it to them, uh, especially uh, relatives of mine. <laughs> I want to make sure that it is a better industry for everyone, That that's my stick, more
1: than actually working. I agree. Um, I am, my name's Elizabeth Whistler. I am currently a professor. So I now teach in the area of costume design and technology. But prior to that, I worked for many, many years based out of Chicago. I also do a lot of large scale, like textile art and other
0: like integrated um, fabric technology, sculpture work. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Could you each describe your demographics for us?
2: I'm a a woman. I'm 55 years old, Filipino-American, originally from Long Island, and now I live in Chicago.
1: I am 45 years old. I have Native ancestry, and I have children.
0: So now your guys' creative personalities, Christine, what is a live event that you like to experience as an audience?
2: Member? I usually like going to a uh, place. That's what I was doing before the pandemic. In addition to my work, I would go see other work. Seems crazy. <laughs> I'm going to put you yes. on the
0: spot here. What is what is your favorite play?
2: That's like choosing favorite children. I don't have children, but that's what it feels like.
0: Okay, what is one of your top 10 favorite plays? I,
2: le- I last saw, um, what was a good one? I saw Bug. That was good. And actually, the shows I work on, I like. <laughs> the last show I worked on was uh, How to Defend Yourself at Victory Gardens. It was intense, then, but I loved working on it.
1: I, I love plays, musicals, opera, dance pieces. Like I, All of it really um, speaks to me. Um, I do also like going to see other people's work. I also really love a good live music <laughs> event. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I like all, all of it. Okay, so. all
0: right. So that's a little peek into your creative personalities. On to your financial personalities. Christine, are you good or bad with money? Uh,
2: I would say uh, no. <laughs> but I'm getting better. I mean, I had to because of the you know lack of work. I have a real problem. Like I'm a costume designer who shops, does a lot of modern dress shows. And that's like putting someone has an addiction right in the right in the candy shop. So I have to fight the impulse to shop. And it's really for no reason. It's stress, nervousness, it's impulse. Um and I, I need to uh I had to fight that urge. That is uh and putting putting stuff away is a struggle. I don't know why, but it is. So but yeah. during this pandemic yeah I had to to learn how not to do that because there was nothing to do it with, so
0: yeah. Elizabeth, are you good or bad with money?
1: I'm very good with money. I don't enjoy shopping, but yes, I am good with money.
0: The last financial question before we get to pay equity, Christine again. Growing up, did you have good financial examples to learn from?
2: I did from my dad, but I felt like he was too strict with money. But looking back, I see the, the wisdom of his ways actually of my parents in general, as you get older, you, you see the wisdom. So yeah. And then I I look at my other uh, siblings, and I see how good they are with money. So I try to
1: emulate that.
0: Elizabeth, growing up, did you have good financial examples?
1: I did. Um, I would say that I come from kind of a matrilineal structure. And so my mother and my grandmother, they all they all controlled the household and the household incomes. And so I watched them balance, budget, um, invest. um, And a lot of our kind of dinner conversations were around um, kind of the household management tasks. And a lot of that came down to finances. (laughs) I also watched my parents run a construction company. And so sitting in a room where... That very act and personal act of running a company, which was actually in our basement for many years too, for several years. Um, And then my grandparents also ran a company together as well. And so, and we're talking like small company. And so it was really on them to do that labor uh, and to hold a significant amount of the labor of running the company. Growing up in that environment is not um, typical. And so I think that helped me significantly was just by being around the conversation of that. And also watching people struggle um, and recover and stay together. Like, it's really kind of amazing (laughs) when you think about it. Um, It's not for everybody, but I have seen it done successfully. And so that I have to say that 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 helps a lot. And it is not it's a rare inside kind of educational view. Um,
0: Okay, so now on to conversation on pay equity. So this is a heavy topic just because, especially in theater, it seems like no one is paid enough. Those people that do get paid more, it's not always fair across demographics. And, and there's just a lot here. And so I'm going to try to remain light on this topic, but it's, I've never had a conversation about this that ends with me smiling. <laughs> so I'll just pitch these questions to you, and you can choose who's going to answer. What is pay equity? And how does it affect arts workers?
2: Pay equity to me is, uh, is opening up the gates to more people because I find that only certain people are, are able to make a living in theater or they have a side business, many side businesses, which is ha- having multiple jobs. And I feel that's not a living or a, a way of life that you could sustain for a long time. There's no work-life balance when you do that, if you're constantly uh, working on multiple gigs. When I uh, talk to, to other designers in other fields, set designers are able to stack multiple jobs, also lighting, and costume designers, because the nature of our job, we cannot. We cannot, because we have multiple commitments of fittings and see because the fittings happen before tech and some designers are allowed to they work before but most of the work is is during tech we have a longer time commitment and so we cannot stack as many jobs we have to stack as many jobs as we can to pay bills that's the other thing Those designers they're not paid enough so they have to stack shows which I find other professions don't have to.
0: And, and to, to just to clarify something you said earlier, you said people who are sustaining a, a career have a lot of other jobs. And were you just talking about all the shows we're working on at yeah, that's, one time? You're not talking about other jobs.
2: Some have other jobs or like teaching or they have another business. But yeah, even the, even if you just have other jobs within the industry. You still have to have multiple
0: jobs. I agree a hundred percent. And I, and I, because I'm a lighting designer, so I feel like I'm not able to stack jobs. I see what you're saying. The tech period is like shorter, but lighting has to be in the theater. And so to me, there's no way to stack, like unless you outsource at which point you're not doing the work. I, it's not that I'm angry at set designers Because I also actually thought this about costume designers. It's like, well, you could design the costumes and then be at a day or two of tech. Whereas as a lighting designer, I have to be there for every single day of tech.
2: No, we have to do multiple fittings. I go to a lot of rehearsals because we don't get all the information. No fault of anyone. I like to go to rehearsals and see stuff happening firsthand. But if you have to stack shows, you can't do that. So the show doesn't get the full attention. And if a show does not, or theater does not pay enough, you have to stack shows. So I feel like some theaters, if they're going to pay someone and they don't pay them enough, they should realize that they're not going to get 24 hour, you know, attention to that show. If you're not paying a living wage, someone's going to have a day job or they're going to have multiple shows.
1: Yeah. There's um, just to kind of, yes. And on top of everything that's been said already, uh, there's a lot of, misunderstanding around actually the, the labor involved for, um, that's the thing, like your lighting equipment is not going to ask you 10 questions every time they see you. That is labor answering those questions. And so like, that's the thing, because we are one-on-one with each individual performer and then one-on-one with those characters, we are kind of a central hub for a lot of kind of conversation and dialogue around that. And I, that's what I don't think people understand Is part of that labor is that constant communication. And so like going to the rehearsals to see how the performers are developing those characters and then how we are helping with that either visually or through safety or through intimacy. Like there are so many things that we are involved in because we are one-on-one with the performers, fittings. If you've ever tried to pick out a pair of jeans for somebody, you will understand what I'm talking about when I say fittings. <laughs> like it is a it is labor, and it is all part of the job. We know it's part of the job, but I oftentimes, just from experience, um, I get into my first design meeting, and the set design is done. The set has been designed, so I'm not part of that conversation. Okay, great. So the set designer's done. They've handed all their renderings or their drawings, elevations over to the shop, and they're getting uh, bid out and quoted on now. I'm now entering the conversation, but I'm still like, I need to meet the cast because I need to do that labor of communication with all of them and find out, you know, like what kind of shoes they like to wear and everything else that comes with being a designer. And then I'm presenting designs, I'm modifying, I'm changing, I'm attending rehearsals, I'm communicating, I'm communicating, (laughs) like I'm doing all this labor, I'm I'm sourcing, I'm finding materials, you know, I'm I'm going all over the place, I'm doing all of this. And meanwhile, the set's being built, not by the set designer. And then I show up for first dress. And most of the time, I was expected to bring first dress to first dress. Because not every theater has a shop. And so that means that the the show is living in my car somewhere and I'm transporting it. I have never seen a scene designer bring a set for first tech. And so I'm loading everything in. No, it's like, it's the labor, the labor. And then we get to first dress. Like I, I, my family is prepared now on a first dress. I come home. Don't even ask me what I want for dinner. Like not a single question more. I cannot, I have reached maximum capacity on questions. Because first dress is each performer, 18 questions minimum, just minimum. And so if you're talking about a a cast of 30 to 35 people, that's my labor. The set designer might interact with their performers, but not, you know what I mean? Like not as much. That's the thing just understanding that. And then we also get calls from theaters to bring costumes in early so they can do publicity photos. That is always sprung on you too. Yeah, it's just clothing. It, you're, like, you're, you're planning on doing it anyways. You might as well do it three weeks early. And then the press, yeah, the press release comes out and they're bragging about the set designer they got or maybe the sound designer. And you're like, those are my clothes. <laughs> well, that's my work, my labor. You can't even like add my name on there. And so that's the thing, like, I think it's this, this kind of assumption of like it's just clothing that just kind of magically appears. And I think we've spent way too long making it look like magic. I think I casually and carefully made sure that clothing was loaded in and that I entered that space calm and looking rested and relaxed because I didn't wanna bring that energy into the space. It does nothing but destroy all the respect that I've built with the performers. But at the same time, like, I've actively had people not hold the door for me. when <laughs> They've watched me struggle through with my bags of garments. You know, and so it's, that's, that's the thing. That's where we are when we're sitting there in tech. Uh,
0: okay, so you guys actually answered a question that I had as, like, the very last question, which was, why are costume professionals leading this charge? I was thinking, like, lighting designers, nobody also sees all the labor we're doing. And yes, our, our lighting rig doesn't ask us 100 questions, but, you know, 99 lights. Well, we don't have this one. Okay, what do you need? And and there's just so much back and forth. And even set designers who were ragging on, they still have to go. No. <laughs> they still have a ton of of, of labor as well. Yeah. Shade one of paint. Oh, well, it should be shade three. No, it's shade seven.
1: But they're communicating that to their labor that's been supplied for them. That's the thing. Like. If I had, if I had labor that I was communicating with, this would be a different conversation. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing. Like I'm not communicating with labor. I'm one-on-one with the performer because I I might be the entire labor package for that show for costumes. And so like, I, I would love to answer questions from my labor, (laughs) my help. Yeah. Like I would love to have that help support system. And so I'm not ragging on other designers and like I I watch and see the labor happening. I'm not able to see all of it because I'm usually in the dressing room answering questions. Don't get me wrong. I love questions. I love it because it means that I'm actively involved in the show. But it is it, it is like this unseen kind of invisible labor because no one else should be in that dressing room. So that's the thing. I don't think our labor is often seen because we are protecting that space for very good reason.
0: Okay. So I think this is a part of it. What is wage transparency and how does that fit into this?
2: Wage transparency is knowing, it's knowing what other designers get and what uh, other costume designers get. It's also knowing what labor, as Elizabeth was talking, what labor you get are you expected to design wigs and make the wigs? I had that happen to me. I signed a contract. Nothing about wigs was in there. I'm like, okay, um, I'll sign the contract. And then first meeting they're, oh yeah, well, let's talk about the wigs. I'm like, yeah, you have a wig designer, right? Wig maker. And they're like, no, I'm like, no, that's not, I didn't go to school to design and make wigs. Why are you looking at me to do that? That's what, Wage transparency is too. It's knowing what is expected of you and 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 uh, parity of labor. There's a TikTok video showing what the weight room of the basketball players, a uh, professional basketball players. They had one set of weights, and then she showed this blast basketball player showed the the men's weight room. You could see the difference, and I wish we could do that. Maybe on the next show, show my labor and show the set, go into the set. I know it's set again, but going into the scenic shop and seeing their labor, even in the larger theaters, there's more labor for set set than costumes where they want to cut costs is with costumes. It's never wood set. During production meetings, people talk about, oh, we need this for the set. We need this for the set. Uh, and it's approved. But if I need another shirt or uh, we need to buy something else, it's, it's like, show me your receipts and we need to see where we can cut costs. I just feel like, and then again, that's labor again, because you're expected to be the costume shop manager.
1: That's wage, wage equity. Uh, Transparency benefits everybody. Seeing what all of the wages are, when a job is posted, knowing what it's paying, benefits everybody. Benefits the employer, because they will only get people into those interviews that are agreeing to that from the beginning. But it does allow us to see where inequities are happening. It's not just with us. I've known props designers that were significantly underpaid and under staffed or a a stage manager that was assumed to do props as well. And so like it benefits everybody to have that transparency because with wage transparency comes more job description transparency. Like what, this is everything we're asking you to do. Here's the price. It should be required. And that's why, you know, to lead into the playbill campaign that we're doing right now, we need to normalize posting the rate of pay. We need to normalize that there is pay And we need to normalize that internships are paid minimum wage. And we need to normalize the minimum wage conversation of having it match inflation. And so we are trying to lift the entire industry, not just one or two sections. This is for everybody. My earning more money benefits more people in my life, (laughs) you know, but my also working healthy, safe hours. Having a work-life balance, just everything. Like it's it's not funny to work until you die. It's it's a bad joke that the theater likes to make. And the thing is that, that we're trying to laugh around something that's actually a very real problem. There's no safety net. There's not enough to retain to retain for retirement planning. It's hard to invest when you're living from check to check. And so this assumption that a creative life is a life of luxury is not true. And it's especially not true to people that don't come from foundational wealth or have other sources of income in their life, including through marriage, uh, inheritance, other ways of having financial support. But I have seen jobs with entry-level pay in the theater industry that wants you to have a bachelor's, a master's, and five years of experience. That is not an entry-level person. They have actively and financially invested to meet your requirements. Now you want to pay them entry. No. And so we're automatically not getting people that are going to enter the field. Who are we leaving out? Who's not joining theater? Because it isn't a choice for them. It isn't viable. And so everybody wants to engage in entertainment. We have a, a country. They can't get enough of it, but yet they don't actually understand the labor involved in it and why it has value. It was assumed for many years that women went to school and learned home economics and part of home economics was sewing. Well, that's gone. A lot of things were removed from the school system, but it was removed so we could meet standardized testing. So we removed things like that and then we started removing the arts as well. And so to find someone, you know, that's the thing, like these assumptions around the costume designer being also the costume creator is harmful to the industry because it allows us to be put into, here's this designer and here's this designer's labor help support system. Here's this designer and their labor sources system. And then here we have what has historically been and predominantly been middle-aged white women, you know. And they can do it all. They're just like this magical unicorn. <laughs> and they, they're a little grumpy because they seem really overworked. But, you know, and I, I, we have to disrupt that and interrupt that, that that is not a diverse labor pool. It is a, uh, you know, it's, it's homogenized. So if we're trying to say we're bringing all voices in, and that's the thing, the middle-aged white woman has done damage and costume discussions and hair and makeup discussions that they shouldn't have been in, you know, but also that they hadn't had taken the time for the training for the interrupting their own biases. <laughs> so so that's the thing. We don't want that for the industry. We want it to be just as diverse backstage as it is on stage. But with that comes transparency, equity. and when we talk about equity, we're talking about labor, pay, health, and safety. Those are all the equities we need. Everybody's always talking about this table and this, you know, everybody you get your seat at the table. Well, my seat's kind of shaky and it's sitting about 10 inches lower than everybody else's. I've got like a phone book under one leg. Like, that's the thing. I want the seat that other person's got. I want the, I want it to have a back and a nice plush seat. It's like, what do we do when we're when we're inviting people to our table? Are we giving everybody the same chair to sit on? Because we're not. When we're not representing three-legged stool, one's labor, one's health and safety, and one's pay. And so if when those are not sitting firmly on the ground of equal length and balance, you've got problems. And then the internship thing, lift the curtains doing an amazing job. Some interns, you know, they brought in a really nice chair from home. Their parents bought it for them. Some others are being offered how to find food stamps. That's not good. That's not good. We shouldn't pay to play in the arts. No, that's got to stop. It's got to stop. I've seen people in backstage spaces that did not belong there. That they were just riding their time till that trust fund kicked in or something, you know. And it was it was really they they knew that they were they were eventually going to end up on top. That they were going to be the artistic director with the the high six figure income.
0: Everybody in theater, everybody in the arts, everybody everywhere is saying, at the end of this pandemic, we're going to have a new world. We're not going back to what we did. And I disagree. I know human nature, and I know how shows make money, and I know how these theaters work. I think we're going back exactly to what everyone says we're not going back to. Like, for example, in New York City they're shutting down the subway from midnight to five. So that, by them doing that, it will force theaters, hopefully, to close earlier so that way people can get on the subway and go home. But that's not theater taking that action and saying we can't do 10 out of 12s anymore. That's the city of New York. So I appreciate what you guys are doing because you're taking action, and I think this will slowly help us get to a better world. I think it's,
2: uh, it's their interest too, because uh, I know several people who already left theater. They're working multiple shows and getting recognized, but they realized during this pause that they didn't want it. It, it just forced it, you know, it just made you realize and think about what you're actually doing. And the, and the rug was pulled out from underneath us and there was no cushion. I find that very like I feel like I need to work till like I'm dead because there's no there's no cushion. That's not a way to live. And that's not a motivation to work in theater, to work in theater. So uh, you should be able to enjoy it. In 2008, for like the recession, I my fees were cut they were lowered. They'll try it. They'll try
1: it. Oh yeah. No, this whole idea. You're just lucky. You're just lucky to have a job right now. Um, you're just lucky that we're even doing theater. You're just lucky that we even called you. Um, Cause that's the thing. Like it used to be when we were first starting out, it was exposure, resume builder, you know, network, get to be known. And then it became Well, you've always done it for three hundred dollars. Why would we pay you more? It's like, no, no. I was doing that exposure portfolio building thing you said. I did that, Um, and so this kind of holding on to the. And then now I see some of that coded language coming back about like refresh your portfolio because you know you haven't had anything in it for a year. Yeah, that's not my fault. I didn't all of a sudden become a bad person to work with. (laughs) It was. Nobody was, or they shouldn't have been, we shouldn't have been, we shouldn't have been asking people to work during this, um, for health reasons, because again, there's no cushion. So to assume that everybody has this like amazing life insurance policy that they walked into a pandemic with is wrong to assume that they have network or, um, safety nets for everybody else in their life. If they did contract the disease is wrong.
0: Okay. So not believe it or not, not everyone who listens to this podcast is a theater worker. Can we talk about how people in theater get jobs? Something that frustrates me is that most of the time when I'm offered a job and the pay is low or I want to negotiate higher, my only leverage is saying no. Everything is about the individual and ownership. Like it's like these systems that we're talking about, it's a system problem because. When the costume designer is suddenly expected to make wigs, that's part of the system. And then if you don't do it or you want more pay for it, it's like you're letting the director down or you're letting your fellow designers down or you're letting your actors down. The this, this system is what's not paying you. <laughs> it's not those people. They're not paying your paycheck. Can you just talk about how costume designers get work and then also maybe why that plays into this playbill situation?
1: This isn't going to be solved by us. It's going to be solved by privileged people saying no, when we've said no, not coming in behind us and saying, well, I'll do it for less. I don't need money. I'm just being an artist (laughs) and I've got a really great bank account already provided by somebody else. Like that's who's going to solve this. Who else is going to solve this is for all the other designers sitting at the table, making sure that I'm making as much as they are. Who's going to solve this? All the people that want to hide how much they're paying because they're ashamed, facing that shame, fixing it, and then posting the pay that's proper. And so we're just here being loud, trying to get people to recognize what's happening. When it really comes down to it, you're in a better position to solve this than we are. We need people like you to use their power and to draw attention to this, because I can absolutely tell you that negotiation has not been something that I've been allowed to do. I want to negotiate. I love to negotiate. But there is language around there's somebody else that will take this job. I need that somebody else to sit back down and not take that job. (laughs) Like we need to, that's the great thing about what's been happening right now. Small silver linings is that we've all had finally some time to talk to each other (laughs) and say, how's that been working for you? Oh, not so good too. Great. Let's talk to each other and let's let's fix this. For non-theater people, we go to these job posting boards. This is where we find our work. And so Playbill is one of the biggest ones. They right now just say, tell us if it's paid or unpaid. People should go and look at how many jobs are unpaid because they now have to say that. But when it says paid, we want to know how much, because just because it paid doesn't mean it's good pay. And like, what are the expectations? Because that's when I can negotiate. I can say, okay, for this amount, here's what I can do for you. If you want more, I'm going to need more. And I can break it down for people. I I can do that labor constantly, you know, doing my, my job description labor. I saying for this amount, this is what we're looking at. For every show as a designer, it's a hundred hours. From start to finish, it's a minimum of a hundred hours. And that's the production meetings, the fittings, sourcing the materials. Even if I have labor, I still have to source the materials. Rendering, communicating with direct uh, director, other designers, going into tech, everything. It's a hundred hours easily. I will let people know when they offer me okay, pay, how much per hour I'm getting on that hundred hours. I've also gotten into the habit before people started normalizing wage transparency of just saying, I expect that I'm being paid as much or more than the other designers. And if they flinched or looked away, I knew. I knew that they're sitting there offering me less than everybody else while also asking me to do a significant amount of labor on the show. Because I would ask about support. Do I have support? The best is when they give you a whole team of volunteers. So now not only am I supervising. People that may not have skills, I'm training them. Would you ever do that? You know, what I mean, that's the thing. And I grew up with a construction family. I can go into a scene shop and build a set, but tell me who can come over and engineer fabric into a wearable sculpture. Tell me who can do that. And so that's the thing. We hold a skill set that actually is valuable. We need, we, we. To each other like that's the work we can do to fix this is that we need to say to each other this is valuable the skills that you have other people don't we need to value this
2: i mean when you say no i mean it may be a defeat for you but i had i said no to a theater and you know i asked all the questions pay labor and i still couldn't do it because <laughs> i asked for it and then um I realized later when another designer asked me about that same job, but then I said, oh, how much are you getting? They raised a fee at least. She, the person who they said they raised a fee. So I go, well, okay, it's more than, and I told her it's more than what I was offered. So that's good. So no does help. It may not help you personally, but it, will, it may help the next designer. Because then the theater will go back and go, well, you know, if if so-and-so and is saying no, maybe we should offer more. I mean, it's probably still not enough, but at least it, it got her fee higher. So collectively, we can do that. It may not work for you personally, but if more people keep doing that, it will normalize, you know, designers asking for support. Um, it was a show is set in 1920s germany and they're like we have this money. the fee is 600 and there's 800 for a costume i'm like are you not you know are you
1: what no that's not gonna yeah this assumption that you just have a whole bunch of costumes waiting around in your private storage unit or basement somewhere in 1920s. i'm just gonna thrift it <laughs> yeah like this assumption that like you have all the materials already it's like And that they're available for whoever hires you to have this stock and storage. And the thing is, I think a lot of people got into the cycle of having stock and storage because the pay was so low.
2: That's what I'm doing now. I'm decluttering all my stock. And like, I want to have my apartment back. So I'm decluttering. Yeah. I don't
1: want to be a rental house. I want to be a designer. (laughs) I want to be a builder. I want to be a maker. I want to be a doer. I don't want to be a rental house. If I wanted to be a rental house, it would be a rental house. And that's a that's actually a really um, that, that is actually a business license I have looked into and it comes with a lot, you know, like there's a lot to it. And so no, there's just this assumption that we're gonna bring in most of the costumes for free
0: is part of the problem. Okay, so this the the playbill job board. So right now it says either unpaid or paid. It doesn't have to say what the pay is. Are you guys just asking for them to specify the amount of the pay? Or are you also asking for specification of what is the labor and what all are you expecting? Like, are you asking for more details in that?
1: Well, no, the job description, like that's going to be written by different people at different times. Um, But the job description is always there. But the thing is requiring whoever's using that service to post jobs, requiring that they state the pay. Because every company has a number in mind. They know what they're going to, they know what their range is. Post it. (laughs) Just say it. Just say it up front. Um, Because that allows us to look at that data. It allows us to pull that data. It allows us to look at two jobs posted at the same theater at the same time, asking for labor in two different locations that is equal to each other. And see if they're getting paid the same. (laughs) You know, it allows us to do side by sides. And so that's how it's going to be until we can normalize people just saying how much they're being paid. (laughs) And um, fortunately, a lot of places, states have gone and made it legal, you know, because it used to be used to be able to be punished by your company for talking about pay.
0: Federally, you have every legal right by law to talk about pay, no matter what business you are in anywhere employers are not supposed to discourage you from talking about it. However, they still do.
1: Oh, yeah. Right to work states and stuff. Oh, yeah. If I was sitting on top of the pile, I might have a different opinion about this. But that's the thing. We are being forced to fight over scraps. And so we're fighting with each other when we're fighting with the wrong people. Play a bill. Wake up. Follow your, your whole statement you posted this summer about diversity, equity, inclusion, and access and Black Lives Matter and like open the books and make everybody post the pay because there is nothing more disappointing than seeing like BIPOC people strongly encouraged to apply $9 an hour. Excuse me? Excuse me? You created that void by not hiring historically, for a very long time, you have kept your company white and now you need somebody to come in. They are not entry. They are experts. Pay them like they are experts because you're going to ask things of them that should never be asked. And you need to, a minimum of three people need to come in together so they can help each other out. So they're not the lone person sitting there saying, no, 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 we don't do that anymore. We don't say that anymore. You don't talk to me like that. Don't touch my hair. Like that, that kind of stuff. Like it needs to stop. It needs to stop this whole, like, well, you're just lucky that we're finally hiring you. And it's like, no, no, (laughs) your anti-racism workout, is not working? If that's how you think this goes, (laughs) so stop it, you know? And so there's a lot of that too, to wage transparency and wage equity is recognizing that some companies are backpedaling hard right now, trying to figure out like where they went wrong and why is their board so white? <laughs> and so, yeah, you got to fix it in the bank account when you're fixing it publicly with your statements, you got to fix it in the bank accounts too.
2: Yeah. My parents were like, why, why are you going to theater? What, what is, and I'm like, Oh, you know, and I'm like, well, they were, right, you know, it's just uh, like every when I do out of town shows, every costume shop is white. So I always feel like some kind of pioneer. I don't know. It just feels like am I the ambassador for I don't know. It just feel everyone and I'm introverted in any way and I hate people staring at me. And But that's that happens because I'm usually the only whatever everywhere. And it's just tiring. My parents are, are doctors. The idea of me going to the arts was horrifying. <laughs> because, you know, they they left their country and they wanted a better life for their kids. And then I went into the arts. So <laughs> so they knew already. But I, I am only hired for POC shows, most of them. It's just very isolating. And it creates the otherness when you're not hired for other shows. It's usually not the main stage shows. It's in the the studio or the upstairs theater in the union guidelines those designers are paid less. So POC artists are always paid less. But we're doing the same work. It doesn't matter. Like I design a main stage show the same as a studio show. You just have to it's all the same. They say, "Oh, we're inviting you to the table, but we're going to pay you less." So again, that's more gatekeeping and keeping people
0: out. Can you just break that down a hair more for people who might not be completely theater-based, but like between main stage and then the second stage,
2: for instance, the the, the Goodman has the Albert Theater, and that's like fifteen hundred seats or a thousand seats, and then the Owen has eight hundred seats, and usually the uh, newer, the modern, PLC shows are in this. Um, the Owen theater, which is smaller, it's a smaller audience. And the tier system is that we pay Owen artists less than Albert. The difference in amount of seats doesn't make a, a difference to the designer. You're still designing the cost and you're still lighting the lights. You're still building the set the same. There's no difference. It's just the number of seats.
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think the rationale there is that the main stage has the big musical that's going to sell lots of tickets and make lots of money. And then the second stage is for the experimental work that is important, but people aren't going to buy tickets.
1: Yeah, Ed, they're keeping their audience happy. Who's their audience? Why do they think only 800 seats are needed for this story when 1,500 are needed for another?
0: Playbill needs to do the right thing now, and they can help all the people that are using their resource. We can't rely on them and we can't force them to have that ethical backbone. It falls back to us, the designers, as individuals that we as a collective have to work together. Moving forward, it's on us, it's on Playbill, it's on everyone.
1: We asked them a year ago, they ignored us. They had an entire year to do it, make it seem like it was their idea. And that they were going to be so beautiful. But now we're being more public about our ask. And so it's not going to look like they just decided to join the conversation and really like make that mission statement true and value everything that they've been saying, you know, once um, pandemics fully exploded. And so that's the thing. They had so many opportunities to just do it.
0: Do you guys know about offstagejobs.com? Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah.
0: Because they require... They require. I mean, they, they just started as like a fledgling thing 10, 15 years ago, but they are now a substantial machine, I would say, with more job postings than Playbill. From my thought... Now, I haven't gotten a job off of Offstage Jobs or Playbill, and I haven't even looked at listings for years on those sites. But as far as I know, they're the only two theater job sites really
1: well there's art search which also requires it as well and art search actually became it used to have to have a a membership and stuff and now it's free so they they did they did good (laughs) we're waiting on playbill we're waiting on playbill to join the conversation
0: art search isn't that mostly academia it is because i feel like it's a little easier in academia to post a professor amount of money, a salary. It's
1: not common.
0: Is it it's not easier? It's not
1: common. State schools are required to have all their salaries posted online. So if you're applying to a job at a state school, you can go and see what your future colleagues might be making. And then you can make decisions based on what you see. The education system, we we don't have time in this podcast, but I'm I'm the one now training these students to go out and get these jobs. I'm in a position where I can even require them to have to have an internship before they graduate. I'm not I'm just saying like, that's, we're the, we're feeding the industry, especially when they require um, an MFA, a BFA, or five years, you know, in a shop or whatever, you can get your four years here. And so that's the thing, like we're feeding the industry. We need to be good too. We need to be very good. We need to be good in what we're teaching, what we're training, what we're saying, the spaces that we're creating for people. The you know like the um, the anti-racism work that needs to happen like we we need to be part of that too because there are people that may come into I'm not talking about where I work <laughs> but that go into school and learn very quickly that theater is not for them I've had students sit down in ten out of 12s and fall asleep because they were so tired not because of what we were asking of them but because they had a job they had their schoolwork they had another job. And so they learned that they couldn't do theater because they're too tired, you know? And so, and the 10 out of 12 also, I, I would like to get rid of those as well. But that's the thing. They're not even getting through my gate, let alone out into the, you know, the bigger area. And so we, it, it needs to be fixed everywhere. And that's the thing. We need, we need, to, we need to know what we're being paid to,
0: yep. Just to touch on this hours, because you have hammered home the point of there's a lot of hours that go. And you said 100 hours for a design minimum. But also, if you're in tech for six days, 16 hours in a row, you're already getting to that 100 hours. So 100 hours really, just to emphasize again, is the minimum. You you guys put out a press release, and there was there was part of it I'm going to read here that just... Uh, hit me (laughs) to the core, hit my heart, (laughs) and it, it plays into this hours. The largest subsidy for the arts is not government, patrons, or the private sector, but from the unpaid labor hours or underpaid labor hours of artists. Okay, so knowing what we all know about wage transparency and equity, what is some financial advice that you would give to yourself back when you went into your career or some advice that you would give to costume professionals that are starting right now
2: taxes that i've gotten trouble with that you need to put aside money for that especially if you're all your jobs are 1099s that's that's a big thing
1: find out why you're 1099 why why can't the company put you on a w2 w4 like why can't they do that I also, I would like now that I, now that we can do this, I couldn't necessarily do this. So I can't talk to young Elizabeth and say, do this, look up everybody you're getting ready to work with. Look them all up. Google the artistic director, 990 that company, get their 990 off a GuideStar and find out what they are paying, you know, what they are earning, how much the company brings in, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, look at it. It's all public information. Look at it. You'll be better informed when you step in that room, but look up everybody else you're working with and then talk to them, you know? Um, But when it comes to longevity and career, I sit at a table and I ask everybody what they're working on next. That was my tactic when I first started out and it worked really well for me. It works different for everybody based on how confident they are to have that conversation. But I, you know, I, I would say, what are you working on next? And do they need a designer? (laughs) Do they need me? You know? Cause it, it feels like we're working well together. If I wasn't enjoying that environment, I wouldn't ask anybody <laughs> or I might ask them what they're doing next so I can stay away. But I was able to then slowly just casually kind of transfer that language into, what are you working on next? Oh, and by the way, what are they paying you to do this? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and so I, I had to, I, like, before I could preach to the industry to normalize it, I had to normalize it for myself. I had to get really comfortable with saying how much I was getting paid and asking other people how much they were getting paid, you know? And so that's really what it is. It it takes a little bit of work on the inside first before you can start going outside with it. I was not born with this confidence. I did not enter my career with this confidence, but now that I am in a place um, of privilege, I need to use that. I need to use it because I would not say to young Elizabeth, go into every situation with this, with all of this, <laughs> you know, like I, that would not
0: be mine. I love that thought of looking up the nine ninety and looking up how much the artistic director is paid. Cause like my icebreaker when I meet people is, Oh, do you have a Roth IRA? Do you have a retirement account for yourself set up? But now I want my new icebreaker to be, Hey, you know how much this artistic director is making? <laughs> because then even if I don't tell them, they're going to go look it up or, Knowing that number sort of helps everybody's knowledge base. Is there anything, we're doing it right now and talking about this, but is there anything that you and I can do to stress the importance of wage transparency and wage equity to our fellow artists?
1: I reached the top of where I was going to be in Chicago, and so I left. You know, I was, I was designing a show for the sixth time. You know, like that, that's not cool. That's not fair, and I'm not bringing anything new to that conversation. Somebody else should be. You know, and I remember when I first got to Chicago seeing the same six names in all of the programs. I'm like, why you're in the way? <laughs> I want these jobs, you know. And and so I became that person. I was I was that so time to step out, you know. Um, but I'm not done. I just needed to reposition myself so I could kind of, you know, it's not punching up, it's not yelling up. I want,
0: I want different ladders. So we can dismantle this one. What separates those that have a full-time career in the arts from those that never get started in it, or do it for a while and then transition to something else?
2: Mental burnout, a physical burnout too. I mean, when I was renting or pulling, your your you know, carpal tunnel is real. Um, if you don't have financial stability going into it you may lose it <laughs> while you're in theater. I mean, the only time I was able to buy a new car was when I got a grant. It wasn't from the income from theater. It was from a grant. And this GoFundMe, you know, like, we can't do that. We, to pay for things, you shouldn't be asking other people to. Yeah, I think that's why people left or didn't even get started. I've, I've had design assistants who are in in looking back, we didn't pay them enough. I asked a lot of them and I don't feel good about that. And they left the industry and I go, oh well, I had
1: some part in that. With underpay comes under respect, comes being not understood, comes assumptions around you're willing to abuse yourself, will abuse you too. Um, So there's a lot of other things that come with being under overworked and underpaid. And it's, it's, an, it's like an abusive relationship, really. And so they'll use all these beautiful, strong family words, a lot of emotional language. Those are all the red flags. We really need to remove the emotional language from job postings, too. You don't want me to be passionate about theater. You want me to be a decent human being when I'm talking to people about theater, <laughs> like, but passionate, no, I'll choose my passion on any given day. Like really, it's not up to you to decide my emotional band <laughs> with, on the, you know what I mean? Like that's the thing. And so we've got to get rid of those because the more emotional language in a job post that the, that's, those are all red flags to me. They really are. And so, but we're training people to think like, well, you're not, you're not passionate enough. That's why you didn't make it, you know? It's like, no, it has nothing to do with passion It has to do with trust, respect, health, safety, (laughs) being paid so I can go get a meal, being given time to get that meal, being given time to eat that meal, you know, and so that kind of stuff.
0: Where can we find out more about your endeavor? And what can we do to help?
1: (laughs) Yeah,
2: there's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're everywhere.
1: (laughs) We've got a great team that's just posted on everything.
0: (laughs) If somebody didn't want to go to my show notes and wanted to search for themselves, what would they type into the search machine?
1: On our team, Chicago Costume Professionals for Wage Equity, and on Facebook, same names. If you just visit Playbill on any given day, you'll see us on all their posts uh, reminding them about wage transparency. I wanna do a huge shout out right now to Elsa Hiltner, who has been kind of not only driving the bus, but like doing all the maintenance on the bus and maybe even put the bus together. Elsa has put together some incredibly witty and fun like graphics that we can use. Um, Lots of sense of humor going a long way. Uh, Genevieve Beller put together a whole like um, pay language as, as the Zodiac the other day that is absolutely hysterical. Like I encourage everybody to go look for this. We asked nice, we were ignored, we came back, we were told that we should have asked nicer and we're just done with that. <laughs> we're done with that. And so we are still being nice. We're just being a lot more. There's <laughs> so much more this time. <laughs> I don't doubt that Playville will eventually do this. I don't doubt that they will eventually make this change. It'll be interesting to see how and when and what exactly it's going to take to tip it. It only benefits everybody.
0: Christine and Elizabeth, thank you so much for chatting with me today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. I appreciate it.
0: That was our interview with Christine Pasquale and Elizabeth Whistler. My takeaways were theater designers work a lot of hours. And the current model for theater is unsustainable and leads to burnout. And finally, Playbill needs to require pay amounts on their job board and they need to do it sooner rather than later. To hear more from our discussion, become a patron. Up until May 5th, you can sign up for $3 a month. That level is going away and will become $5 a month. So join now at that level by visiting patreon.com artisticfinance artistic finance. As always, if you aren't ready to put down money to support the show, but you want to hear the extended interview, you can always email me at artisticfinancepodcast@gmail.com, and I will share the audio with you directly. The Patreon helps supplement the overhead of running the show, but I never want to withhold information. This offer always applies not just to the current show, but for any episode in our catalog. One final request. I want to transcribe the episodes for those who would love the content but need to digest it in a visual way. I've been working on this using AI and the process is simple enough, but it still takes hours to check and correct. At this point, we have over 70 hours of content and it's going very slow. If you would like to help with this task or happen to have free access to transcription software, please reach out. Email me at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com and thank you in advance. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com. Please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nigrin Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chang Liu.